a part of such Christ-centered worship and lyrics and praise. So that's what church is all about. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 13 this morning. Um, But as you're turning there, I noticed in the bulletin that we have a need for a sick food coordinator. We're not sure how it's happened, but our food has become sick. (laughs) And we need a coordinator to figure it out so we can get this food feeling a little better so we can eat it. Anyway... That's a need of our church, if you're interested. Um, it's a powerful ministry. <clears throat> also, just a reminder, there is a little, it's not really a basket, it's a box, a black box, back there on the little shelf for a special offering for Andy Hudson. We took one up last week, um, but there was no basket back there. Uh, many of you just put it in the offering plate, that's fine too. But that's available in the back if you haven't already given an offering and you would desire to do that for the Hudson family. And then one more announcement, and that is just a reminder that next Sunday, right after our fellowship meal, we will have what we're calling an inform and connect meeting. It's basically just a church meeting, very informal. It's an opportunity for you, really for us to hear from you, uh, for you to take ownership, uh, ask any questions about the church and direction. Offer encouragement would be great. And um, so if you would like to attend that, that will be next week. So we are in chapter 13. This is the last chapter of our study of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And as you will recall, the whole story of these books centers around the city of Jerusalem, that great Old Testament city. And Jerusalem, uh, the, the books are about the city of Jerusalem because Jerusalem is the place that God chose to dwell. It's the place that he chose to proclaim his name and he chose to make himself known to the people of the earth. And so in sense, Jerusalem is about all things God. It's where his presence dwells. It's where the commandments were given. It's where the people of God dwell, where the sacrifices are made, where lives are changed, and God is worshipped. And so Jerusalem is about all things God. But as we know in these books, there came a time in the people of God's lives where they strayed so far from Him, and their hearts grew so cold against God that He disciplined them. And that he exiled them and he gave this precious city into the hands of their enemies. And it was destroyed and it was laid in ruins. But just as God promises to discipline his people, he also promises to restore his people because he's God, the one and only God. And so after about 141 years of desolation and discipline And the city gates being burned, the walls, just piles of debris and no temple. He began to stir the hearts of his people that were in exile. And they began to return one by one or group by group with a heart and a passion to rebuild the city so that it will once again become a place filled with the glory and the presence of God. And a place where the people of God will exalt God. That was the plan. 
And so though the walls laid in ruins, this time there was a man that he stirred who was about 800 miles away in another city, a grand city, uh, the capital of the world in that day because Persia was the dominant power and culture of that day. This man's name was Nehemiah and he was a child of God that was part of the exile. And his stir, spirit began to stir in him and he became, became more and more interested in the welfare of the blessed Jerusalem. And it got to the point where he was asking for reports. And, of course, people traveled back and forth in that day. How does the city fare? What is it like? And what's going on with the people of God? And all the reports were negative. The walls lay in ruins. The gates had been burned. The people of God are basically in hiding. There's no temple there. There's no worship taking place. They are, they are, they are in hiding in essence. So he wanted to had this God-given burden to rebuild the city. And he prayed for an opportunity to do that. And his boss, the king of Persia, gave him freedom to do that. So he comes back into the city and finds it basically as the reports have been told. It is in ruins. So he surveys it and he comes up with a plan to restore it to its glory. It's a daunting task. As a matter of fact, along with his plan to restore the city, he gains quick, quick enemies, primarily in the form of Tobiah and Sanballat. We're reaching way back now to the earlier chapters. But there are people that hate Nehemiah. There are people in the vicinity of the city that do not want to see the city prosper there. They're not interested at all in the plan of God or that the God of the Jews would be exalted and that his people would again live according to his ways. So despite all of the intimidating project, despite the lack of resources and despite even the, the threat of his life being taken, Nehemiah presses on and in just 52 days, the walls of Jerusalem are rebuilt and the gates are set back in its place. And then he begins to appoint leaders and institute people and policies to rebuild the city. And it's a glorious, glorious thing that's taken place. And the great Bible teacher, Ezra, gets up in the pulpit and begins to read God's word to the people. And there's a reformation going on. And whereas once they weren't hungry for God's word, now they are hungry for God's word. And they can't get enough. And he's going on two hours and three hours and four hours and six hours and eight hours. The word of God being expounded to the people and they want more and more. They come back for more and they're making promises as they hear the commands of God. We're going to our marriage. We're going to straighten our marriages out. We're going to straighten our families out. We're going to give our resources. We're going to rebuild this temple. We're going to put the worshipers and the priests back in place. So so the sacrifices can occur and God can be worshipped. The singers, the choirs coming back on. And they're passionate for the Lord. They want to be the people that God has called them to be. So that's where we have been. And there's just one more chapter to go in this awesome book of Nehemiah. I wonder what it has in store for us. Well, in chapter 10, we left with the inspiring words of determination. We will not forsake the household of God. And then in chapter 12, we left with the 
inspiring words. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard from many miles away. That's how pumped they were. And filled with the spirit they were in their worship. So it just makes sense that chapter 13 is going to tell us that they lived happily ever after. But the problem with that, that's not the case. Because it's, it's not a fairy tale. It's a Bible. It's about people's real lives. And the Bible gives it to us, warts and all. And many times, it is not a happily ever after story when we're talking about the history of mankind. Because man is finicky. Our hearts are finicky. They can be hot, they can be cold, they can be lukewarm. And it shows in the lives that we live. And so many times we read books such as Nehemiah, it starts out bad, the people are in sin, they're in bondage, and then they cry out to God and He comes in there and He reforms them and He rescues them strictly by His love and His grace. And then everything is going wonderful and then they begin to sink back down again. It's just hard for man to stay focused. We are in constant need of God. The fact of the matter is in chapter 13 we find all the progress that has been made thus far in jeopardy. If you will believe it. So the Bible takes us on these emotional roller coasters of bad and then great and then bad again because that is kind of our personality. Especially without Christ and sometimes with Christ and you know we we're on fire for the Lord, and then one generation lives with Him, and another one, and then the next one starts to stray. And so you have two on, two off, and that's just kind of the history. But God mercifully saves. And so we go from, we will not neglect the household of God to compromise. Uh, to, to things being jeopardized, to things that were being built up so strong and impenetrable. Now there's cracks in their spiritual lives and disobedience and rebellion. And we're going to read the text shortly, but it's only fair that I let you know what's going on because it's not real clear. It just kind of picks up in a place and doesn't fill in the gaps. So let me do that real quickly for you. And here's what's what um, most scholars think has happened. Uh, Nehemiah was there, comes from Susa, visits the city of Jerusalem, and takes him approximately just two months to rebuild the wall. He didn't get started right away. Remember, he surveyed and he came up with a plan. But he's been there about 12 years, they believe, putting people in place, leaders in place, reestablishing policies for the glory of God. And the city is doing wonderful the city is strong. Its people are being fed. Lives are being changed. God is being exalted. It's just getting stronger and stronger and stronger to the glory of God. Nehemiah by this time is probably in his 40s or 50s. Maybe even a little older than that. Um, can't move around. Do things like he used to. For whatever reason, he, he goes back to Persia. We don't know exactly why. It just says, I went back to the king. Maybe he ran out of money. Maybe the king called him back into service. 
Uh, maybe he left the water on or he forgot to feed his dog 12 years ago when he left and made the 800 mile trek to Jerusalem. But for whatever reason, he uh, he leaves Jerusalem and goes back to Susa. Scholars think that he was there anywhere from one to 12, but most agree probably six or seven years went by without Nehemiah in Jerusalem. And then he begins, somehow he catches word, he becomes aware, maybe there's more reports, but he comes aware of the fact that things are not well in Jerusalem again, that all the policies that he worked so hard to set in place are falling apart. The people are breaking the promises to God. They're no longer worshiping God. The marriages are distraught. The leaders that he put in place are not leading the people. And the ways of God are being forsaken. And so I imagine that he has a decision to make. He probably hears the reports or however he became privy to them. And he's thinking to himself, okay, God, where do we go from here? Do I just stick to my plan here and trust that you're going to raise somebody else up there to do what needs to be done? Is my time over? Do I appoint someone? Do I look for somebody to send? What role do I play in this? And it turns out that he still very much has a passion for the city. And that this report has troubled him to the point where he has to make the trip back. And so he grabs his backpack and he throws a six-pack six of Geritol in there and he gets his walking stick and back to about 800 miles back to Jerusalem he goes and this is where we pick up the story up and I'm just going to tackle the first 14 verses this morning and I'll break it into three sermons as you will see first one chapter 13 on that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people and then it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah. Prepared for Tobiah a large chamber, which they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels and the tithes of grain, wine and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, keepers and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. After some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave a orders, and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. 
so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and I set them in their stations. Then all of Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasures over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Pedaiah the Levites, and Ezra assistant Hanan, and the son of Zechar, the son of Metaniah, for they were considered reliable. And their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this. And do not wipe out my deeds, my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. First, the evil toleration in the household of God. Verse 7, I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of our God. Well, verse one of this story baits us as the Bible often does. It's kind of strange that a chapter would begin by saying who wasn't allowed in the household of God. And so they say the Ammonites and the Moabites aren't allowed in the household of God. So it baits us. Sure enough, what do we find in verse seven? But a Moabite in the household of God. Tobiah. He's actually an Ammonite. I'm sorry. He's an Ammonite. We found that in verse 10 of chapter 2. He has taken up residence in a chamber there. Uh, not just any chamber, but it was actually a chamber that was specifically designated to put the storehouses, the resources needed in order for the people to function and worship the Lord and serve the Lord in the way that they were supposed to. Supplies in order for people to faithfully worship the Lord. To do church as church was supposed to be done. And a priest of all people who is, whose job it is to look out for the temple. To look out for the things of God. Moves the temple supplies out of this chamber. So that his kin. Some relative of some kind. Tobiah can stay there. And it's, most scholars agree it's not just about, hey, he needed a place to, uh, to live. Because when you took up residence in the household of God, it was because you were serving God in some kind of way in the household of God. That's the whole purpose for you being that close to the temple. Or maybe you'd stay outside the city, but the idea was being close because you had a job to do. And so most scholars agree that he was not just given a place to stay, but he was given some kind of spiritual duty, some kind of task to perform in the household of God. He was not allowed in there, according to the word of God. So why does this, does Nehemiah bring it up? What's going on with the Ammonites and Moabites that they can't even come in and worship the Lord? Well, it's got some history to it. Some issues. And you'll recall, I'll try to make a real long story short, but you'll recall in Genesis when God called Abraham to the land of promise and he went and he's traveling along. But remember, somebody went with him and it was his nephew Lot. And they both were 
moving along in the land and they were blessed so much by God. They had their livestock multiplied, their servants multiplied. It got to the point where they were so big that they couldn't even hang out anymore. Interfering with each other's stuff. And so Abraham, the gracious man he was, went to Lot and said, look, just take take a look around. Where do you want to go? I'll stay out of your way. You stay out of mine so we can both thrive. Lot took the most fertile ground. Abraham said, fine, it's yours. Unfortunately, that most fertile ground was near an infertile or immoral city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Lot kind of got sucked into that. And you'll remember that it was his wife that was turned into a pillar of salt because she couldn't stop thinking about the immorality in Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, the story gets even sadder from there, even though Lot and his two daughters flew or fled from the city, went up into the mountains. They didn't have husbands for whatever reason. And so they get their father drunk, successive nights, and it's an incestuous relationship. They both get pregnant, have sons, hence Moab and Ammon are actually Ammon and Moab. And so they are kin to the Israelites. They go back. They have um, shared blood. But when God freed the Israelites from Egypt and they were on their way to the promised land to inherit Abraham's promise. They are confronted with the Moabites and the Ammonites. And God said, don't destroy them. I have a plan for them. You're not to go near them and mess with them like I'm telling you to do with some of the other tribes. But when they came upon them, they just said, we want safe passage. And the Ammonites and Moanites basically said, no bread for you, no water for you. We don't want anything to do with you. We don't want anything to do with your God. We got our own gods. We don't want to be a part of this plan that's going on. And so you just got to go around us. And then they, of course, called down a curse on them. And God didn't appreciate that at all. So there's bad blood there. They weren't interested in the things of God. And so they were not allowed to be in the household of God. Now, it's not racial discrimination as we continue to find. It's, it's about distinction. It's not ethnicity. Well, how can I say that? Well, there happens to be a Ruth, the Moabitess, who is very much a people of God. And who is in the genealogy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it's not about ethnicity. It's about immorality. It's about idolatry. There needs to be a distinction. God puts a distinction there. We can't just join hands with anybody. We can't just accept anybody into leadership and into the worship of God. It doesn't work that way. Can't be bought out. Can't be... Uh, nice. God doesn't just change the rules of what it means to worship him and his holiness according to cultural preferences. He's not the surfer dude. Hey, man, what's up? Anything goes. It's OK. Peace out with the ebbs and flows. <clears throat> so we can't just invite anybody, which is unfortunately what Eliashib had done. We need to think about that in our day and age, too, as some churches are very inclusive. And so when we see that van full of very nice dressed people that come and they're knocking on doors and they're giving you watchtower paraphernalia and pamphlets and telling you about the wonderful kingdom to come. 
And when we see those nicely dressed coat and tie white boys with Bibles under their arms, knocking on doors, sharing the Book of Mormon, we might think, well, they're very clean cut. They're a very moral people. They're nice enough. Maybe we can invite them and be a part of what we're doing. Why not join forces? Well, we can enjoy them. We can invite them to church maybe to get saved. But not to be a part of the plan of God, the leadership of God, to run things, to operate things, to serve in some kind of capacity. The book of Revelation, as Holy Scripture comes to an end in that capacity, clearly says we are not to do two things. We're not to add to God's word, nor are we to take away from God's word. And what do some people do? Both. We've got some groups that take away from God's word. They don't recognize the whole book. The Jews don't recognize the New Testament as God's word. The liberals don't recognize the miraculous of God's word. So people are cutting it out, picking and choosing what is authoritative and what's really from God and what's not. Then there are others that insist on adding to it. Well, we had this prophet. No, he's not in your Bible, but he's in our Bible. And so they add to the word of God. And it comes to a point where you have so many new messages or you remove so many things that you're no longer really hearing from the one and true God. It's too mixed up. It's too messed up. It doesn't carry the same weight. It doesn't carry the same authority. And therefore, you no longer really have the same faith or really the same religion. It changes things too much. God says, keep the influence of other religions out. Keep them out if they do not conform to these Pure and perfect words. So we don't want to reason well. They're they're such good people and they have nice families. And they're better behaved than most people that I know. They seem to be awfully devoted to God. It's okay. Just come on in and be a part of us. What's the big deal? Bring the, the Muslim cleric and the Buddhist guru. Let's see what we can learn from them. They've got some pretty good characteristics. Let's see what they have to say. Let's hear them preach. Let's hear what they have to teach. After all, we don't want to be divisive. Aren't we kind of over that? Haven't we learned about divisions? We want to be open-minded, not closed-minded and all tight and stiff. As if there's only one way to do things. Aren't we educated people and thinking people now? Is it right to drive others away? We want to be tolerant, not totalitarian. Is there really any harm in it? Well, yeah, there really is harm in it because compromise is like the leaven that Jesus talked about. You just get you just let a little bit in there and it has this trickle effect in it and it has a way of affecting the whole thing. Maybe not dramatically, but eventually it has a way of affecting the whole thing. I mean, this guy, Tobiah, if you remember earlier on in the book, he, he was Nehemiah's arch enemy. They did not get along. He hated Nehemiah. He mocked Nehemiah, made fun of everything he tried to do. He tried to get the king against Nehemiah and his policies. He threatened him about getting an army up. I'm going to form an army and conquer you guys if you don't stop what you're doing. Don't 
even think about going to sleep because we're going to be right on you and we're going to take your life. You are never safe. This is the same Tobiah we're talking about. An enemy of God. And here he is in the house of God. He doesn't even like God, the things of God. He's not on the same page with God's people. There, there, there's no conversion here like Ruth. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been such an evil thing if Nehemiah came back and said, Oh, Tobiah, you gave your life to the Lord. Hallelujah. You're a changed man. Come on in. It's none of that. Nehemiah is angry because he sees the evil in it. This is not a changed man. He is not there to worship the Lord. He is not there to promote the truths of God and a priest of all people, the shepherd of all people. Is the one that somehow loosened the rules up a little bit here, there, maybe talked to some people, getting permission, maybe had authority just to act on his own. I don't know. But all of a sudden, this toleration of things that were not okay with God over time, maybe lots of comp conversations. How can we work this out? Let's get along. Uh, what wasn't okay is now okay. And the people are okay. There's not a big fuss. There's nothing happening. There's no protest about this. So there he is. In the house of God, probably serving God in some kind of capacity, whether it's just moving goods around, I don't know. Nehemiah says, you know, by the way, I wasn't here when all this happened. I cannot even believe what I'm hearing. But I was in Susa. Uh, Drinking an iced coffee when all of this was going on, all this compromising. But how can it happen? Well, when toleration becomes more important than truth. And we know, we know what that's about. Isn't that what we're watching happen, unfold before our very eyes in our culture? Toleration is more important than truth. Truth has to take a back seat to certain things. Tobias part of the family. You know, it would just be rude not to include him. He could really get his feelings hurt. And so now what wasn't the law is the new law. It's more important to be nice for everything to be okay to, to stand against it and cause a big fuss about trying to protect the laws of God. Da, 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 da. And so in he goes. He didn't stand for anything, this priest. He let his protection, his guard down. So Nehemiah comes back. And here's his own words. And I was very angry. So second, the anger, the toleration, the evil, and the anger. And I was very angry. Mark Driscoll Jokes, that's my life verse. I was very angry. Maybe some of you can relate with that. I found my life verse um, this week in a devotion I was reading. It's somewhere in Exodus. I need to memorize it. But I memorized the important part. It's after Moses. He had been up on the mountain. The glory of God was just all over the people. They were in the presence of God, it says. And we were in the presence of God. And then we ate and drank. Yes, I thought, yes. Presence of God Eat, drink. Presence of God, eat, drink. That's the way to do life. 
Nehemiah. He was prone to get angry. He got angry back in chapter 5 when people, his own people, brothers in the Lord were exploiting their own. They were starving. They didn't have enough money to feed their families. They were, and, and the rich were exploiting them. They were taking advantage of them. They were buying things away from them because they didn't have a choice in the matter just to put food in their bellies. And he was upset about that and put that to a stop. He has convictions about things and he's very angry and he pulls a Jesus in the temple kind of temper fit. Temple fit. A temple temper fit. Point three. So he is throwing furniture around. That's what Jesus did. He upturned the tables because Jesus, everything was just the people had accepted it in the days of Jesus. It was just business and worship as usual. Tolerated, no protest. Somehow what was not okay became okay. But Jesus comes and he sees it and he knows, of course, the laws of God. And he says, this is not okay. And so he has a temple temper fit. And that's what Nehemiah has here. He's throwing Tobias furniture out of this chamber that was meant for the resources of God. So there goes the memory foam mattress. There goes the coffee maker and the TV and the dresser drawers to buy his active wear to serve the Lord. Talk about an awkward moment in an atmosphere of tolerance. Mm. He got evicted by God. And then verse nine, he says, then I gave orders. You know how it is at home. Mom and dad get angry. What do they start doing? Barking orals. What orders? What do you do? Okay, no more of this and no more of that. Now you got to take this and put this over here. And so Nehemiah is upset. He wants to right the wrong. He's giving orders. He's saying, you're out. You're in. You're reliable. You're out. You're in. He's looking for reliable people to get things back on track. He's barking orders. This anger is for the purpose of writing the wrong. It was a clearly a wrong thing to do. It was evil in the sight of God. And so Nehemiah is upset about it. And he is taking action, barking orders to right the wrong. To buy a house to go. The supplies need to come back. The singers are reinstated. The Levites are reinstated. Now they're getting their portions so they can work and serve the Lord. Whereas before they weren't. A wonderful thing. It's taken place. He is writing the wrong. Then verse 12, all Judah brought the tithe and the grain, the wine offerings into the storehouses. What had happened? Well, apparently because of this compromise that was going on, people weren't so sure about it. And they were holding their tithes and their offerings back. They weren't 100% on board anymore with the things of God because of the compromise in the leadership and the house of God. But as soon as Nehemiah returns and get things straight, people are like, yeah, I'm on board again. And they're bringing their stuff. Yeah, we want to see the temple thrive. We want God to be exalted. You see what a, a big deal it is. The giving had slowed because of this compromise. Now they're serving the Lord. You know, today everybody wants to talk about tolerance and people's rights, individual rights People's wants, our rights to our wants, our rights to our feelings, to not getting them hurt, people stepping on our toes. And so 
We live in this culture where uh, perplexingly there's certain things that go and certain things that don't. Like it's okay to we're permissive about some things. It's okay to, to to do drugs in some cases if that's what makes you feel good. We're even legalizing some of them, and then it's okay to sleep around with no commitment. That's all right if if you're in mutual agreement to these kind of things. It's okay to sleep around with whatever gender you want. It's okay to now to ask our elementary school kids what kind of gender you want to be when you grow up. But somehow it's okay to to ask people. These things to terminate unwanted pregnancies. It's okay now to um, to prostitute yourself or to start to be a porn star to pay your way through college, and to, it's a legitimate way to get money because, after all, or to get fame and fortune because fame and fortune is that important. It's nothing is said about these kind of things, um, but whatever you do, do not hurt anybody's feelings because you have just. Blown it. You just don't do that in our day and age because people's feelings are so important. It's the unforgivable sin. Do not confront them with God's truth of all things. That is just wrong and you will pay for it. And by the way, if you haven't paid for it already, you will pay for it. That's where we're headed. There are people paying for it. For doing things God's way because it has become so counter-cultural. So don't confront them. Don't start throwing their furniture around and raising your voice. Because it is very awkward in this atmosphere of tolerance. Just love and accept and so forth. Feelings, feelings, feelings. So let's play that game. Okay, feelings are really, really important, right? That's what we're being taught. Whatever you do, don't hurt anybody's feelings. Let's play that game. Okay, does God have feelings? Is God a person? According to God's word and all God's people said, does God have feelings? Is it possible to hurt God's feelings? Is it possible for him to be grieved? For him to be upset about certain things that are taking place in this world and in our lives and in our culture and in and out of the church. Yeah. So there are times for believers when it will come down to a decision. Whose feelings are we going to hurt? God's or man's? Whose feelings is it more important to preserve? Whose state of peace or peace of mind or holy stature? Or lifestyle or ways is it more important to preserve, to lift up? We will have to make and do have to make these kind of decisions if we're going to play the cultural game about feelings. Whose feelings are more important? God's or man's? There are things that people here don't tolerate and there are things that God does not tolerate. People get offended and they're tired of hearing about Christ. They're tired of hearing about how he's the only way to be saved and about the gospel and how you got to repent of your sins. Tired about hearing the, the way, the truth and the life and the commands of God and the morality that comes with it. The choices that we have to make. 
tired of it. It's, it's offensive. But if we fail to talk about it, whose feelings are we hurt? God's. And it goes farther than that. Because if, if we really believe in God, and if we really believe that what He has given us is absolutely true, and that this is the solution to a man's dilemma of the cycle of sin and damnation, then is it loving? Is it benefiting society in any way, even if they don't want to hear it for us to just withhold it? Because I'm not going to hurt your feelings, so I'm going to withhold the truth from you. And here I am supposed to believe that it's the only way, and yet I'm, going to, I, I, I'm not going to share it with you. We can't cower back from these things. We need to take courage. All of these issues that are being confronted about marriage and sexuality and morality. If we really believe that this is how man can flourish through the gospel of Christ, then how can we withhold that from people? The remedy that they need is that love. I believe it's best for all humanity in any time, no matter what culture, no matter what struggles. This is the answer. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, light into the darkness. And if we believe in him, if we receive him, we have the right to be called the children of God. And he will restore and he will redeem the brokenness. And many of us are testimonies. To the power of the gospel. To change a life. So. To care more for God. And his feelings. Than man's. We want. To sometimes. We might need to get angry. Nehemiah gets. Very angry. Eliashib did not hold the line. Are there places in our lives where we're not holding the line and then comes the world? So Nehemiah gets angry. He's inflamed. And you say, wait a minute. You mean Christians can get angry? Believers can get angry? Is that allowed? I thought we were supposed to walk around with halos over our heads and a constant stuck smile on our faces. Pretending nothing but Bliss. Is it okay? Isn't that the bad emotion that we're supposed to avoid? Well, is there a place for anger in a believer's life? Yeah. Where does it come from? Does God get passionate about things? Does God have emotions? The person? God, yes. Is one of those emotions anger? Oh, yeah. Remember hell? And damnation, remember judgment and wrath. Oh, yeah. And where do we come from, God? Whose image do we bear, God's? We have the desire and the impulse to get married, uh, to get not married. Yeah, married and angry at the same time. Talking about anger here. Sometimes marriage results in anger. We learned about that this weekend. If we're not careful. What was I talking about? Image of God, anger. So we have that impulse. 
Sometimes we misuse it, but it's there for a reason. And it can be used rightly. And there are things as believers that we should be passionate about, that they do happen. And there's some things as believers we should be very passionate that they don't happen like God. A righteous and an unrighteous anger. We talked about this in Ephesians. Now, the Lord gets angry. It's not his default. Scripture says he is slow to become angry. He's, a, he's loving and abound, abundant in mercy. Slow to become angry. That means he's not like the young kid with a chip on his shoulder. Just wait. You just cross me. Just bump into me one time. Look at me wrong. That's it, man. You're going down. That's not his default. It's loving. And Scripture says you've got to really, really, really push his buttons and cross him and cross him before he lets loose on his wrath. But it'll come. If we do not repent, it will come. So there's a righteous anger. Righteous anger. It's angry for the right reason. Not just angry at anything and everything with a chip. It's angry for the right reason and responds in a godly way to cause change. That's how we use our anger in a righteous way. Get upset about it to the point where we want to do something about it. Not just turn around and stay angry, but fix it. Make the wrong right. Which means that some of us may have some repenting to do. Some of us may have to repent because we're just always angry or we're angry too much and we don't have a good godly reason to be angry. Selfish, maybe. Whereas we were reminded about James yesterday because we're not getting our way. And if that's the case, then we need to repent. But it also leaves room open for some of us to have to repent because we're not getting angry when we should get angry. We're not angry enough. We're not passionate enough about the things that truly do affect the heart of God and grieve the Holy Spirit. We don't want to be involved. And we don't want to be the voice that stands up and speaks loudly. Or we don't want to be the one that throws the furniture around in the temple. And we need to repent. That we are not more upset with the evil, whether it's in or out, than we should be. And that God would have us to be. So, what do we get angry at when we look around and when we look in the mirror? Anything? Where have we not held the line and let a little compromise come in and cause a little doubt and cause the ministry to not thrive? Where have we not held the line in our marriages? Where have we not held the line in our parenting or our household or our workplace? Where have we not held the line in our church? We are the household of God. Let us not. Again, let us not forsake the household. Of God. May God bless the preaching of His Word.